Good morning. This morning we are in Romans chapter 13, and so if you don't mind turning there, we want to begin, as usual, by reading this chapter. And uh, as you may or may not be aware of, it talks about our relationship to government. And I was thinking to myself, what a timely message, because we're in the political season. And then I thought, we're always in the political season, so I guess it's always timely. Maybe it isn't quite so inspired as I would like it to be. But anyway, if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin by reading this chapter together, much shorter than the last one. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13, Paul says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against that which God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of those in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. There is all, this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor and therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our minds, that, Lord, your truth would have penetration to levels that can make a difference in our lives. We're always mindful of James' warning that we can become merely hearers and not doers. In fact, quite honestly, Lord, every one of us knows that often we close our ears to what you're saying because it's uncomfortable and challenging. I pray, Lord, that that would not be the case today, that we would be open and receptive to your Spirit's guidance in our life, that we might know its fruit and its benefits and its joys, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Paul's letter to the Romans is, I would say, impeccably logical. In fact, the term we use to really describe the logical progression of the first part of the book is, we call it the Roman road. It's a great way of sharing your faith. He says in chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He follows in chapter 5, verse 8, when we are in our sins, Christ Jesus came to die for us. In chapter 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. In chapter 10, he says in verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. By simply taking those four passages, you have outlined for you the perfect way of presenting the gospel message to someone who may never have heard it or never really understood it. It's all very logical, very sequential. But the question that we began addressing last week is once I know Christ, once I've made that decision to yield and surrender my life to Him, what do I do then? What's the next step? And that's really where chapters 12 through 16 begin to come into play. They answer that question, how do I live out my salvation on a daily basis as I walk the streets of Spokaloo? And uh, the answer that he gave us in the beginning of chapter 12 was quite simply, he said, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Because he said then and only then can we test and improve or really give kind of tangible evidence of what God's will is. In other words, we often worry about, well, I need to know what God's will is for my life. Well, God's will is to conform you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. He told us that back in chapter 8. And so I know what his will is, is to conform me so that what I might become is a more perfect reflector of the nature of God, uh, the plan of God. But when we simply present our bodies, make that decision, okay, okay, Lord, here, do with me as you please, is what it comes down to, that then we discover what is his good, what is his pleasing, and what is his perfect will for us as individuals. But what does that look like practically? Well, that's where we built on last week. We followed that sacrificial living has certain markers. And first of all, we talked about it means to live humbly and in a realistic appraisal of myself in the light of God's will for my life. It means, secondly, that I love with sincerity, that not just in word, but I live in actuality. Uh, and thirdly, I phrased as simply linking empathetically with other people, that there is a, a touchableness about your life, an approachability. There's a sensitivity and awareness of others' needs. Which brings us to chapter 13, which is not the beginning of a new thought, even though it is arbitrarily designated as a new chapter. In fact, he continues to build on this same theme by telling us, fourthly, that we also have to learn how to live submissively. And he begins that phrase, everyone must submit himself. In this case, he speaks about government. Now, from a biblical point of view, submission is nothing new. Literally, there are dozens, if not scores, of New Testament references talking about your and my responsibility to generally submit ourselves to others. And this creates an immediate conflict for most of us because we live in a world where everything is designed to dominate others, not to submit to others. Everything that takes place is how do I put myself in a position of power, control, and authority, not allowing myself to be under the power control, and authority of others. So when Paul says in Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, we find that the internal battle really begins to start. And it's not surprising that the first place he begins is talking about the marriage relationship. A wife is to submit herself to her husband's leadership. But a husband is supposed to love his wife in the same kind of submissive attitude as Christ has loved us and laid down his life for the church. Now, I've had many women say it's so unfair that God requires women to submit to their husbands. Do you have any idea how unfair it is to ask a man to lay down his life like Jesus did? It's a pretty, pretty big responsibility. I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loved the church, and I would like to say right now, go on record, that 99.99% of the time, I do. Uh, but, <laughs> well, I've thought about it. Very seriously. Many times I've thought about it seriously. But we understand, on a serious note, we understand that this becomes the real struggle because when we begin to define this word to, word to submit, it doesn't help us. Going to the Greek is not helpful in this case. 
In fact, when it's used originally as a military term, it literally meant to, to fall under rank, to line up under your commander and, and submit yourself to his orders. In a non-military usage in the original language, it just simply meant a voluntary attitude of giving in of cooperating, being responsible and carrying a burden. It's, it's placing yourself at the behest of the needs of others. So that even our English definition really does speak directly. It says ready to conform to the authority or will of others to be obedient. And so when Paul says, therefore, you need to submit to the governing authorities, we need to be very clear that he wasn't having some kind of linguistic problem or couldn't come up with the right verb. He meant what he very meant. He meant that we need to place ourselves in a recognition that the governing authorities are authorities that we treat with respect and regard. Now, I might additionally add that submission is not something that came because of sin necessarily. In fact, we know that before sin had entered the human condition, when Adam was in the garden and Eve and he were luxuriating in the life that God had given him, that God had said to him back in chapter 2, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. In other words, the fact that God is commanding, he is setting the parameters for Adam and Eve's behavior tells us that he is the authority and his expectation is that they're going to submit to that authority. Now, we know when we get into chapter 3 that they didn't. And we know that that's another issue that you and I have to deal with in terms of our humanity. But from the very beginning, God set this situation, the system within the universe, that there is a hierarchy of authority, and we need to recognize that beginning first and foremost with God. But secondly, even within the family relationship, Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.3 that a, a wife should submit to her husband's leadership because, he says, Adam was formed first and then Eve. Oftentimes we hear people saying, well, women should submit to their husband's leadership because they sin first and therefore they're getting whacked forever because of it, you know? Well, there's some degree of truth. I don't think Eve struggled with being submitted to Eve, Adam before he sinned. I think if you were married to a sinlessly perfect man, submission would not be a challenge. But when you live with a sinner, suddenly it's all uphill. You know, it's like going to school uphill in the snow both ways all your life. It's a challenge because suddenly now I'm putting myself under the governing authority of someone who struggles with their own headship issues in submission to God. But now he adds to us a third area. He talks about submission to the government. You see, in saying this, Paul is not arguing for any particular kind of government or form of government system or rule. It isn't like Paul is saying, you know, basically democracy or a Republican style of government or a monarchy. It was in the previous centuries, we know that this was the argument for monarchs saying, I am ordained by God and therefore you should submit to my rule. But basically what he's saying is that we need to recognize that we are a people who are to be governed on one level or another. And the reason is because of sin. Now, Sin has also made it so that there will never ever be a perfect government, much less a perfect ruler. Sin guarantees that injustices will continue until the reign of Christ and the only perfect government that this earth will ever see when Christ sets up his thousand year reign, his millennial kingdom upon the earth. And then we can say we have perfect government. But until then, it's always going to be flawed because there's people like you and me who are in those positions of authority. We can argue, are things worse today than they were 200 years ago or 300 years ago? Uh, I'm not sure necessarily. If you're a student of history, you realize there have been some real prominent scoundrels in positions of power throughout our nation's history and worldwide. 
We just unfortunately know a whole lot more today in the technological age where the information age, where we have information about everybody and everyone. Uh, it's not to say that the information is incorrect. I just know that from my perspective, ignorance is bliss. 30 minutes, minutes of Fox News is enough to last me all day long and more. So what we have to understand is he isn't simply saying that we look at people who are in these positions and say, well, they are without air. My dear grandmother, who grew up in a very authoritative, duty-oriented culture, used to always say to me back in the days of Richard Nixon, well, he's our president and we just need to trust him. And that was a little hard for me, being of draft age, I mean, that was, a, that was an uphill challenge for me, but I just realized that isn't the perspective that God wants to say, well, you just accept them, they have the authority, therefore we close our eyes to the reality around us. But we have to also understand until the day when Christ sets up his kingdom that men are sinners and we innately incline towards evil and towards law-breaking so that as people we need to be governed. Now, you may simply say, well, I'm, I'm not a lawbreaker. And I just simply say, do you always drive the speed limit? <laughs> really? I mean, it doesn't take much, does it? I mean, when I do it, it's inadvertent, and it's not my fault. But the whole point is that we, we, we always bump up against the rules. We always find ourselves coming up against some kind of restriction. And this is, this is uh, innate to who we are. But the whole point is that we need to be governed, and preferably, and the way it was in the beginning, we are governed by God, we're governed by His Word, we're governed by His conscience. And that's how God wants us to be governed now, primarily, that we do what we do because we're living by God's word, we're living in obedience to his truth, the leadership of his Holy Spirit. We're, we're people who have a conscience that has been molded by his truth, and we're constantly reflecting that conscience against the choices and decisions that we have to make every day. But lacking that, and often in a world like ours, People are lacking those things. They don't even know what the Word says. When I was a kid, the Ten Commandments hung on the classroom walls. And we also had dinosaurs in the backyard. You know, it's a long, long time ago. It was a different world. But we had it, and just the fact that you had those Ten Commandments saying, thou shalt not steal, affected my behavior. I just knew that it was wrong. But we have a generation that doesn't even know that. They don't know that. They, they, there, is, there are no sense of absolute truths and absolute wrongs. And so when that is lacking, in order for society to be orderly, there has to be laws and those who enforce them. There has to be external regulations. Not surprisingly, social historians long ago discovered that, there, that where these three institutions are, functioning effectively, there is stability. They, they are the pillars and the foundation upon which a society is built. It begins with God, it followed by family, and last of all, government. But when those things are absent, what follows is chaos and eventual collapse. And it's interesting to see the order in which those things deteriorate. Where it begins historically is a turning away from reverence for God. The sacred no longer becomes sacred. Followed by the collapse of the family because the family structure is based upon the sacredness of marriage in the eyes of God. But when marriage becomes expendable and optional, then the family begins to suffer as we're seeing in our culture today where we find that 40% of our young people grow up without both biological parents for some extended period in their life. We find that 50% of millennial children are born out of wedlock today and that only 30% of them are actually choosing to marry 
they choose cohabitation. And what's uh, tragic is, as people feel like this is kind of some kind of socially enlightened direction, historically we know that these are the steps of decline that leads to chaos, confusion, and ultimately the total collapse. So the collapse of the family becomes the second predictor of a collapse of a society. So that finally what happens is you have the collapse of government itself. In my opinion, we're witnessing that at this very moment when we consider the character of the people who are vying for the highest offices in the land. So it's not only unwise, but dangerously destructive for a society to reject any of these three pillars. Or it's terrible when one will seek to usurp the power of the other. So, because essentially when government tries to control religion or tries to control the family, it's usurping power that is not given it by God. That when religion tries to control the government or it tries to control the family rather than being a moral influence for it, then it too will begin to uh, apostate. And when the family ignores both government and religion, it's laying the seed for its own ultimate destruction. And the consequence, historically, is always the same. It's anarchy. And anarchy is a philosophical term that means nothing more than every man lives for himself without regard to the effects on others. You see, God's design from the beginning was that all three of these would work in harmony, that each would promote and support the other, that government would do everything it could to support the church, it would do everything it could to support the family, not to interfere with it, but to be an undergirder. But now we find when philosophies come out saying, well, it takes a village, and that village looks like the Social Security Department. You know, suddenly government intrudes in the role of the family so that we have a vast security system and welfare system where there used to be families caring for each other. And all of that begins to change the character. Government begins to usurp the role of the family. And you find that what happens is oftentimes the church becomes either just a simple organ of the government or it becomes a face-to-face competitor, almost an instigator against the government. And it seeks to have overt control over the family. And the family ultimately checks out completely. And again, what happens is we find that it all begins to fall apart. Which raises kind of a, a serious question for us. What if government becomes unjust? What if it abuses and misuses its authority? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is cautiously guard against going to the extremes. I don't know about you. Well, I do know about you because you're probably a lot like me, but my tendency is always to bounce to the other extreme. Whatever touches me over here drives me to this side. Whatever touches me here drives me to that side. And so we find ourselves be kind of becoming reactive people. And we have to guard against becoming reactive people who simply hear things and go off half-cocked. But basically, there is two extremes we need to avoid. Number one is inappropriate independence. And that's that kind of defiant, disruptive, discordant, divisive behavior. So that when we see, for example, in political meetings where certain groups don't like the message or the personalities, and so they do everything they can to disrupt, even to the point of violence, that's the kind of thing we, I would call as inappropriate independence. When somebody goes and plants a bomb inside of an abortion clinic, that's inappropriate overreaction. It's, it's inappropriate independence. It's saying, I don't care what the law says. I don't care what the rules are. They have violated, so therefore I'm going to return in kind. That's not how God instructs us to deal with it. And the other extreme is what I call the uninvolved indifference. You don't vote, you don't pray, you don't even play a part. And increasingly, this is where the culture is going. In fact, many are predicting that this next election is going to have the lowest voter turnout in, in, in many decades, if not historically, because there are so many people saying, I'm not into this, I'm not into this. And I get it. 
I get it. Believe me, I get it. But at some point, you have to understand that you should first and foremost be praying for this nation because you're part of it. Uh, you know, I don't believe the solutions are political. I don't think they're going to come through policy changes. I don't think there's any executive order that's going to fix what's wrong. In fact, less of them might help be more helpful. But the simple fact is that you have a nation that's walked away from the most important pillar that sustains the society, and that is dependence upon God. And so we as believers should not become indifferent. We should become faithful in our praying for our nation and for our nation's leaders. Now, you have some people saying, well, I don't support this leader or that leader, and I don't like him, and I don't know how to pray for him. Can I suggest how you might pray for those leaders? Pray that when they honor God, he would bless them. And pray when they do things that dishonor God, that his hand would be heavy upon them. That God would intervene and God would reward faithfulness and he would punish unfaithfulness. That God would open the eyes of their understanding so they could see the truth of God instead of believing lies. These are things that change a culture and our indifference as a church has contributed to that. Our, our desire to disengage from the culture or on the other hand to become violently angry so that we're spewing out anger and vitriol and name calling. All of those things are extremes that hurt the cause of Christ and really reveal that we don't understand what our responsibilities are as believers. In fact, that's what Paul sets out here, really. He has four things that, if I can summarize his message, that he wants us to understand. And the very first one he says is, you have to understand the consequences of not submitting to authority. In verses 1 and 2, he says, the authority that exists has been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So the very first thing he's saying is that if you are going to be a rebellious person, there's going to be negative consequences. You know Numbers 32, 23, know for sure that your sins will find you out. Galatians 6, 7 tells us what a man sows, he's going to reap. The whole point is if you sow discord and division and dissension and hatred and anger and revenge and all the rest, you will reap that. That's something that's going to come back and haunt you. You will become part of the problem, not part of the solution. And I'm fearful that many of us as Christians have become a part of the problem and not a part of the solution. Now, we live, I think, in the most blessed system of government that has ever been on the face of the earth. I don't think there's any question that God has shed his grace on us. And it's a system that was based upon the concept that men were sinners so that there are checks and balances in order to keep sinners in their place. Our founding fathers were not necessarily, were not perfect men, and not all of them were in any way close to being what we would call biblical Christians. But one thing they understood was na human nature is plagued with sinful influences, and if you don't have a system that keeps that in check, then excesses will come. So the system, in my opinion, is not the problem, but it is sinful men who have disregarded God and then disregarded the family and now look at government as a means of acquiring power, wealth, and influence for their own selfish interests. These, again, are the seeds of anarchy. But we have to understand that there are consequences to us being a rebellious people. And I want to talk about a little further on what is the appropriate response. But the first thing you have to understand is that we don't rebel against the government. God says, it exists because I created it. So it's kind of like you going through a difficulty in your life and saying, God, why did you allow this difficulty into my life? You know what the answer is? Because he wants to use it in your life. 
Why do we have to deal with the kind of silliness that we see in our culture today? Well, I can blame it on sin, but at the same time, I am given an opportunity by God to respond in a way that's redemptive. That's the choice I have. I can be redemptive or I can be non-redemptive. And I need to prayerfully say, God, help me to be redemptive in how I deal with the problems that we face in our culture today. So there are consequences to rebelling against that authority. Secondly, he says, for conscience sake, therefore, if necessary, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. The idea that I want to maintain a clear conscience before God, that I know, in other words, that my choices and my decisions agree with his word and his truth. The thirdly, he says, there is the commandments that God has placed. And essentially, he says, you give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, then you pay your taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. My father used to tell me that in the military, he said, we salute the uniform, not the man in it. And he let me know that there were certain men in uniform that he didn't respect, but he never wanted to dishonor the uniform. In a sense, when we talk about those who were in political authority, we need to be respectful of the fact that they're in those positions of authority, whether they be people in the Oval Office or they be people in the county clerk's office. We need to be treating them respectfully that we do not further the cause of Christ by acting in an angry and accusatory or critical way. That somehow we have bought into the idea that the force of my argument is won by the tone or the level of my voice. That somehow the angrier I become and the more vociferous I become, the more compelling my argument becomes. And I would say that you're not, the argument isn't compelling, you're just scary. <laughs> you're just scary. We, you know, we're afraid you're going to go postal. That's what we're really concerned about. So the whole point is that the commandment says that we owe something to people just simply by the fact that they're in that position. And that as a believer, I, I, I believe that we should pay every tax that you actually owe and you take every exemption you can legally take. But when he says, let no debt remain outstanding, that do not defraud anybody of something that is rightfully theirs, except one debt that you can never repay, and that is to love your brother, to love other people. That every other debt can be paid off, and you say, well, that's behind me, I'm moving on now. I'm going to never use that credit card again. And that's a great moment in your life, right? You pay off the house and say, now it's free and clear. I don't have to, I don't know anything in this house except a never-ending and escalating level of taxation. But other than that, it's all mine. That and the insurance. And, and that, you know, yeah, <laughs> you come to realize, wait a minute, <laughs> this really is never, ever paid off, is it? But the whole point is that there's a certain sense of accomplishment and behind you, but he says, don't ever get to the place to say, well, I loved him once, I loved him twice, I loved him three times, I'm done. But it's an unending obligation that I have to walk in love, even to those who are in positions of authority. And he says most tellingly, love, he defines it, does no harm to its neighbor. Love is thinking about what is the most beneficial thing that I can do to this person who is part of my life? How can I be the most gracious and kind and loving to them? You see, there is a tendency within the church to want to build walls. We want to build walls of separation from us and the messy stuff out there. And I understand that. I understand the concept says not in my backyard, not in my neighborhood, but it is only a matter of time before it will become your neighborhood. And what I'm saying is why not be proactive and go into the fray rather than trying to create a world where there is no fray because you won't succeed. You won't succeed. You know, I think uh, Martin Niemöller, who in his... Uh, or Niebuhr in his great poem about uh, the Nazi Holocaust. 
when he says, you know, he was arrested and imprisoned by the, by the Germans because of his faith. But he said, you know, when they, they came for the communists, I said nothing. And when they came for the labor unionists, I said, I said nothing. And when they came for, and he goes through this whole list of all the people the Nazis came to, and he says, so that when they came to get me, there was no one left to speak up. And I think essentially we have to get away from that idea that we're just going to keep on pulling back and pulling back and not being engaged. And we need to be people who begin to to vote. We need to speak. We need to, even some of you may be called to serve in political office, although I pray to God he doesn't put that on you. (laughs) Really, seriously, for Christians, it is unbelievably uh, antagonistic environment. Unbelievable. I mean, it's literally, you know, going into the lion's den with bacon in your pocket. I don't know how else to put it. It's a pretty, pretty scary environment. I mean, I just talked to some of our, our brothers and sisters that are in that role. It's unbelievable. But nonetheless, God may be calling us not to disengage, but to become engaged in our culture, not as politicians, but as servants of Jesus Christ. But thirdly, or fourthly, he says, but we all do this in, the, in a greater context. In other words, my life as a Christian is going to be lived always in a greater context. When he says, and do this, in verse 11, understanding the present time, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than it was when we first believed. Now, Paul believed with all of his heart, that Jesus was going to return in his lifetime. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty convinced. Uh, When Pastor Chuck passed away, I know that he passed away believing that Jesus was going to come in his lifetime. And I want to tell you that I'm living today believing that Jesus is going to come in my lifetime. Now, am I foolish? No, I'm trying to, because I know that no man knows the day or the hour so that what, where I'm at right now, this may be the day, this may be the hour. But it's most interestingly, we'll talk on this on Wednesday night when we go in the last part of Revelation, but I don't believe there's ever been a time in the history of the world that has come more closely to fulfilling the things that the Bible says have to happen in the end than the world in which we live today. When we talk about simple things like one world economy, one world currency that people can't buy or sell without receiving the mark of the beast and so forth, technologically that's never been possible until today. And now today it's not only possible, it is so far beyond even the probable that it's actually in process. We are moving very, very rapidly towards that. I mean, it's, and it's got some beautiful benefits to it. If I can just go to the store without a wallet and I just stick my, my hand under the reader and it suddenly has all my data there and I can go and walk in the store, if I can simply take something off the shelf, put it in my bag and walk out the door and know it's already been recorded and I don't have a receipt, it's already been registered and it'll be automatically deducted. This is already happening around the world in various places. I mean, I think about stuff, that the convenience is very, very attractive to me. That I can travel around the world and never have to carry my passport ever again. <laughs> and just simply put my hand underneath the scanner or run something across my forehead. I think, this is attractive stuff. This makes life easier. There's nothing worse than standing in passport control. <laughs> Unless it's customs. But you know... These things are compelling and they're wonderful and they're exciting, but they also begin to dovetail with what the scripture says we are coming to as a world where the end times. And that's why I think, yes, no matter how you look at it, whether Paul was saying in his day or we're saying today, the end is nearer today than we ever thought before. But his exhortation is there's a danger that we slip into kind of a slumber. The slumber that Peter talked about, all things continue as they were from the beginning. Nothing has changed, Peter said. Scoffers saying, this is the way it's always been. They're always talking about this, and it'll never happen until one day it happens. 
So that because, you know, I'm, I'm a historian by trade and training and background, I can look at the patterns of history and I can say, if you just want to look at a nation, nations do not survive forever. The international historical average is 250 years and then great nations die, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, sometimes completely, sometimes only partially, but they fade, fade away for exactly the same reasons because they all follow exactly the same patterns, and we are lockstepped with that in this country. So don't put your hope in America. Put your hope in Jesus. Because when you have hope in Jesus, all can be lost, but nothing is lost because he is Lord of all. But in the end, friends, we have to understand that we are people who are an apocalyptic people, if you will. To be a biblical Christian is to be an apocalyptic Christian. In other words, we believe that there is a thing called the end. There is a point of judgment. And so he's saying, you need to not slumber. You need to be awake because your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. The night, he says, is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness. Now we immediately think deeds of darkness. What is that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's bad, wicked things. Certainly it is. He <laughs> describes some of them. He talks about you know, immorality that people engage in. But there's other deeds of darkness which kind of fall in suit that often get short shrifted. And that's things like hatred, envy, jealousy, rage, anger, vitriol. These kind of things, malice and bitterness, and these things can be things that just darken us as God's people. He says, put instead on, on you the armor of life. Clothe yourself with Jesus Christ and do not think about gratifying the desires of the sinful nature. And he, that isn't just sleeping with your neighbor's wife. Gratifying the sinful nature is wanting to get revenge. Wanting to be hateful. Wanting to punish So the point again becomes, is it ever right to resist injustice? Well, the Bible actually gives us examples of it. I mean, Peter and John are arrested by the Sanhedrin and they tell them, we, we give you orders no longer to preach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and the apostles are, are beaten and threatened and all that goes with it. And afterwards, their response is, we must obey God rather than man. That when government or, or institutions command us to do the things that God says that we must do, then we need to disobey. Not necessarily in violent rebellion, but essentially God's law always trumps man's rules. No pun intended. <laughs> but God's laws always trump man's rules. That secondly, when Paul is in Philippi, the, he, we find that the magistrates arrested them. And it says they're stripped, they're beaten, they're severely flogged, and they're thrown into prison. Their feet are fastened into stocks. Now, that's what I call a totally bad day. I mean, that's, that's you know, there's nothing left to make you hurt. You hurt everywhere and you're left uncomfortable. The next morning, they say, release those men and send them on their way. And I love Paul's response. He goes, wait a minute. They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison, and now they want, us, want to get rid of us quietly. You see, it was illegal to beat or to punish a Roman citizen without first going through a trial, much like our legal system. These men assumed that they were Jews, didn't even think that they might be Roman citizens, and when they find out that they have just done this to Roman citizens, they go into a flat-out panic. You know why? Because Roman law says, if you abuse your authority, whatever you did will be done to you. All that Paul had to do is go to the regional governor and say, this is what they did. Those magistrates would have been arrested. They would have been put in prison. They would have been beaten. Their feet would have been put in the stocks. They would have had to go through everything that they just inflicted upon uh, Paul and, and Barnabas. Well, was Paul, some people saying, well, that's very petty of Paul. He should have just endured. No, Paul was standing up for the rights, not only of himself, but for the rights of the church. He's thinking about the they're going to do this to the church as soon as we're gone. We've got to make them afraid of getting in trouble for their actions. 
And that's why I think that citizens should react, that I think there are times when we litigate against unjust government practices. And then we don't sit back and just go, well, well, nothing we can do about that. No, that's not being rebellious. That's not being uh, unloving. It's just simply saying, here's the law. You violated the law. We're holding you to an accountability. The very law that you say you support, the very constitution you say you support, we are holding you liable for that. And hopefully the courts will be just. But even in Rome, many times they were not just. There's a third case where Paul himself is arrested. He's uh, under accusation of being an insurrectionist, a seditionist. The, the penalty of that is, is, a, is to be executed. He's standing before the Roman governor. The Roman governor is taking payoffs on the side, hoping that he can get something for himself in this whole process. C- corrupt government l- rulers. I mean, it was a real problem. And Paul finally realizes, I'm not going to get justice here. He says, I appeal to Caesar. You see, under Roman law, any Roman citizen could appeal to have his case heard personally by the emperor in Rome. That's why some people said they didn't live very long. Because anybody, I mean, the poorest person in the country, if they were a Roman citizen, could say, I appeal to Caesar. He had to take the time to listen to them. When Claudius said to some woman, I'm too busy to listen to you. And she said, then you're too busy to be emperor. And he said, you're right. And he sat down and listened to her case. You see, this was an interesting thing. So Paul uses those rights. And what we need to do is recognize we have certain rights that are part of our responsibility. That submitting to government authority means that we submit to that which is our rights and not just simply avoiding that which is our wrongs. But what we see over and over again in scriptures is passive resistance, not active rebellion. These men were resisting evil, but they were not allowing themselves, as Paul said in chapter 12, to be overcome by that evil. And I would simply say this, we do not fight fire with fire. In fact, back in chapter 12, at the end of that chapter, Paul said, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That we remain loving and gracious and caring and kind to even those who are being cruel and abusive and hateful. And I don't say that as if that's some easy thing to do. That is difficult. That is difficult. That takes God's power, God's grace. But I'll never forget years ago, in the heat of the abortion battle, and there was a huge rally in in Washington, D.C., and it had come on the, uh, a week after there had been a big pro-abortion rally in D.C., And the people who did the pro-abortion rally in D.C. exaggerated the number of people that came out and did all this stuff to try to make it look like they represented a majority opinion in the nation. And some of the enemies of the pro-life movement had um, those those uh, listening devices that you can point from a long distance and you can hear over here people speaking. And the two main speakers, two well-known, nationally known Christian leaders were discussing how they were going to approach this particular meeting before they went up to speak. And they basically said, well, what we have to do is fight fire with fire. They lied about the size. They exaggerated this much. We need to exaggerate in the same way. And then that was played for the public to hear. That was put in the public media. And the tragic moment is, I mean, these are godly men, good men, their hearts were, you know, they're, but we fall into that trap many times that, well, if we're going to mud wrestle, then let's get into the mud. <laughs> let's get into their, let's go to their level. We got to, and it, uh, uh, repeatedly I hear Christians saying when they get into the political arena or dealing with political issues, well, that's the way they play and we got to fight by their rules and we got to go to where... Well, if it's about winning, maybe you're right. But if it's about being a witness for Christ, you're dead wrong. You are dead wrong. That Being a witness for Christ means that I look at Christ as my model and I say, okay, Lord, how did you deal with that? And all we have to do is look at the life of Jesus and see how he never rebelled against government authority. 
liberation theologists teach that Jesus was a rebel and he was killed because he was seeking the rights of the poor. You know, I, all I can say to that is you haven't read the Bible. <laughs> Jesus said, my kingdom isn't of this earth. And he wasn't saying so, just throw the government out and pretend like there is none. He's just simply saying that the ultimate goal is not to build the perfect government because it will never be. I don't care how great your candidate is in your eye, he or she is a sinner in the hands of an angry God. And we need to understand that it's not by might and it's not by strength, it's by his spirit that nations are changed. So in the history of America, there have been what we call two great awakenings. Great movings of God's spirit that transformed the nation at critical moments when the nation was about to collapse. And what was the heart of that? The people of God fell on their knees in the most desperate moments and began to cry out to God to save the nation. And God responded by a revival he didn't change politicians. He changed politicians' hearts. You know, he didn't change parties. He changed the heart of those who led those parties and on down the line. And that's how God does things. But at the end of the day, I would bet that probably someplace between zero and none of us actually pray for our nation actually spend any time at all saying, God, save America. Save this country. Deliver us from evil men, evil women who are driven by nothing else but selfish ambition, pride, and power, who will lie, cheat, and steal and say anything in order to get that power. God, deliver us. So I've talked to so many of you who are saying, I'm at a quandary to know what to do. And my only advice to you is, then pray. God, save America. Save this land. That's the force behind sending missionaries into every corner of the earth. Do you realize that 90% of money that supports foreign missions comes from the U.S. of A? If America doesn't continue to be that, there will be no <laughs> mission effort in the world. I mean, just saying. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you'd stir our hearts and our minds in a way that would make a difference in how we not only relate to the world, but we would just see it with a different set of lenses. You said to, to awake from our slumber. I think sometimes, Lord, we're just kind of like people who have suddenly been awakened and we're groggy and can't get our wits about us and can't focus our eyes and our mind is clouded. Lord, I pray that you would awaken us. You just bring a clarity and that we would begin by simply asking God, have mercy upon us. Forgive us as a nation. Forgive us as individuals. Forgive us as individual believers for our materialism. Forgive the church for its desire for uh, prestige and prominence and where our obsession with nickels and noses uh, and numbers, Lord, and, and not being really concerned about being conformed to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. That you've called us to be a voice into our world, a voice into our culture, and yet, Lord, so often we are chasing as hard after those same things that the culture is pursuing. And we're reacting to injustices in exactly the same way they react. God, I pray that you'd convert our hearts to be like yours, that we would love the things that you love, we would hate the things that you hate, that you'd break our hearts with things that break your heart, and you'd help us to realize that you are not in love with a governmental system, you are in love with people, and that what's wrong with politics is the fact that it's people who are sinners. And the more we get away from you, the more evil our ways become. Lord, I pray that we would bring, you would bring repentance and revival into America, a humbling of hearts and minds before the throne of God. Because only then, Lord, I think will we see anything 
of recovery or restoration. Move by your spirit, O oh God, in our hearts so that you might move through our prayers, so you might move through our nation. We ask in Jesus' holy name, amen.